I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the book of Acts. Our text is Acts 19, 1 through 20. Ephesus is the seat of administration for the Roman province of Asia. On a map, that's the lower left-hand chunk of Asia Minor. It's the most populous city of all Asia Minor. Ephesus did great trade situated on a main trade route to Rome, and it was granted the status of a free Greek city-state. So Ephesus fits well into Paul's strategy to establish Christian fellowships in influential urban centers from which the gospel can then spread into the surrounding area. Paul will stay almost three years in Ephesus, and he will see the success of his strategy. Luke reports in 1910, and this took place for two years, so that all who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. To get an idea of what that means, we can consider the churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3, all located in this province, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Paul had thought to go to Ephesus on his second missionary journey, and we see that his reasoning to create a base in Ephesus that would reach out into the surrounding area was, was a very sound strategy. It's just that the timing was not right. God led him instead to the European provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Paul has reset his strategy, and on this third missionary journey, he tries the same route, starting off strengthening the churches through Galatia and Phrygia, and then continuing on to Ephesus, this time arriving successfully. The text tells us he passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. I assume that is the more direct east-west route following the Roman road directly west from Pisidian Antioch. The other option would have been to turn southward and follow the coast along to Ephesus. This is not Paul's first visit to Ephesus. We read in our previous lesson when he departed Corinth, he stopped over on his way back to Jerusalem. He made a brief appearance at that time in the synagogue and promised to return if God wills. And we know God wills. The conversation about Jesus at the Ephesian synagogue didn't end when Paul left. Priscilla and Aquila stayed. Apollos arrived, lending his voice to the case for Christ. But now Apollos has, has left and Paul has returned. The pattern of Paul's stay in Ephesus follows the same pattern we encountered in the other three movements of Acts part 5. Luke starts with a two-part introduction, and then he gives us a problem, resolution, and follow-up. The introduction tells the story of Paul's interaction with 12 disciples and then gives us an overview of his first two years in Ephesus. These two accounts are recorded in Acts 19, 1 through 10. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul meets twelve disciples. Disciples is Luke's preferable term for Christ follower. If Luke wanted us to understand that these were disciples of John the Baptist rather than disciples of Jesus, it seems most likely he would have told us they were disciples of John. The word disciple appears 28 times in Acts and always in reference to people who have believed in Jesus. It has the same basic meaning as Christian or believer, terms Luke also uses, but only a handful of times each. These disciples were fairly deficient in their knowledge of Jesus. Unlike Priscilla and Aquila's assessment of Apollos, Paul finds their understanding quite inadequate. I'm asking myself, how is it that these men didn't meet Apollos or get to know Priscilla and Aquila? Why is it not until now when Paul comes that that we find out that their faith in Jesus is deficient? They're members of the Jewish community, but apparently they have little or no connection to these other Christ followers in that community. The text says that Paul found them, so it seems to me they were not known to Priscilla and Aquila. Where were they hiding? Well, Ephesus had a population of over 200,000 at the time, and the Jewish community may have exceeded 10,000. That's a large church. You know, large enough that there might be numerous subgroups that do not regularly come into contact with one another. You can imagine showing up at synagogue, and if there's there are this many people, and we've got services all day long, and it's it's quite possible that you never get to know this this other subgroup of people who are talking about Jesus. For whatever reason, these twelve did not receive sufficient instruction until Paul himself coming to Ephesus met someone who knew someone, who introduced him to someone uh, who connected him to this group of men. You know, or maybe he just ran into them on the street, you know, just a, a Holy Spirit uh, appointment. You know, we, we don't know how they came to, to meet each other. We don't know the full extent of their conversation. They profess belief in Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't dispute the reality of their faith, but he does ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You know, he accepts that they may have believed, but something in their experience of Jesus or something in their understanding of Jesus suggests to Paul that they have not been born again by the Spirit. There's not a modern experience that exactly parallels the experience of these men because they were living through the transition between Old Covenant and New Covenant. You know, they, they may have seen Jesus or the people who discipled them may have seen Jesus. But though we can't think of of exact parallels, we can think of Christian experience that may bear some similarities. I believe there are a multitude of believers in Jesus Christ, in churches today, who have insufficient understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Some, for example, are in churches where forgiveness in the name of Jesus is preached, but the Holy Spirit is rarely mentioned. They've never been taught what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Others are in churches where the emotion of being in the Spirit is emphasized in such a way that it distorts what it means to truly walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is lost in in the emotionalism or in the emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit. 
That was the error of First Corinthians. Both errors, ignoring the Holy Spirit or speaking about relationship with the Holy Spirit as fundamentally an emotional experience, can lead to a pursuit of the Christian life through the effort of human flesh rather than through the power that comes from dependence on the Holy Spirit. To abide in Christ, to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the, these ideas all point to the day-by-day dependence on Jesus Christ to produce spiritual fruit in us and through us. And ever since Pentecost, the message of the apostles and the message of Paul that links together faith in Jesus Christ with the spiritual reality of the indwelling Spirit. These 12 men lacked instruction about the Holy Spirit. They had believed in Jesus to some point, but then their knowledge of Jesus seems to end. They've not come to understand certain truths about Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. They do not understand how it was that Jesus, leaving physically, was then able to send the Spirit to indwell and empower those who believe in him. Let's think a little bit how this might come to be. How might they have this kind of faith in Jesus that's inadequate as it is? The primary stream of Christian teaching coming out of Jerusalem flowed from the preaching of the apostles initiated on the day of Pentecost and rapidly expanding during the early days of the Jerusalem awakening. And so we might expect to meet Jews with strong understanding of Jesus who had received instruction from the apostles or or others in this movement. Churches like the church in Rome were started by Jewish believers returning home after Pentecost. Another major stream of Christian faith comes from the missionary work of Paul. His teaching is in agreement with the apostles. We would not be surprised if Paul met some Jews in Ephesus that he'd never met before who had a strong understanding of faith in Jesus through their interaction with Priscilla and Aquila, who in turn had been mentored by Paul. Those are the two streams of Christian proclamation we've been following through Acts. So the, the stream that's coming from the apostles out of Jerusalem and the stream that's coming from Paul and his missionary labors. A third stream of belief about Jesus began in Israel through the ministry of John the Baptist. And that stream seems to have kind of forked into two different streams. One stream coming from John the Baptist flowed into and became equivalent to the stream of belief associated with the apostles. Disciples of John shifted over to the movement that surrounded Jesus. They moved over sometime during the course of Jesus' public ministry. Another fork of that stream from John never met up with the further teaching that came from Jesus and the apostles. Apollos, who he met in chapter 18, seems to have received his teaching from this stream that came from John the Baptist, but that did not link back in with the apostles. John called for a baptism of repentance as preparation for the coming of Messiah, And then when Jesus began his public ministry, John proclaimed him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Reading from the third chapter of the Gospel of John, we can see that John's ministry did not end when Jesus began his ministry. Some of his disciples went over to join the movement around Jesus. Others stayed even when John began to point people to Jesus. Those disciples who stayed with John the Baptist would not have personally heard all the later teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. I'm thinking of the night of instruction that Jesus gave the 12 before his arrest. You know, all that material we have recorded in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 17. You know, twice in those chapters, Jesus teaches, I am going to send you a helper. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to indwell in you to help you to, 
to love God and obey his commandments, and he's going to be the one who witnesses to the world. You know, in the center of that, you know, that, that was in John 14 and John 16. In John 15, we have Jesus urging his disciples to abide in him as branches in the vine so that they might produce spiritual fruit. Jesus later met with his disciples after his resurrection, and he continued his teaching. You know, he's talking about himself, and he's showing how in the law and the Psalms and the prophets, how they speak of him. But then he's also telling them, stay in Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you with power. None of this teaching would be available to a stream of believers who accepted John's proclamation that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but who for some reason were not able to connect into the later movement of Christian teaching. And we can imagine that they, they left Jerusalem while Jesus was still alive, you know, or maybe even right after Jesus' death to go to do what Paul's doing and to, to go back into Jewish synagogues and other places and tell them about what's going on about the Messiah. We can imagine someone going to Alexandria in Egypt and into that community, and there's this, this communication about the Lamb of God has come, you know, but Pentecost hasn't happened, or they weren't there when Pentecost happened, so they don't know about that. And maybe it's from these, this witness that Apollos came to believe in Jesus, but without the instruction that must have come from Pentecost. You know, but so somehow his, his instruction is, is more adequate than, than these 12. But we can imagine similarly how Jews influenced by the teaching of John came to Ephesus and they began to meet in a small group and um, their understanding maybe that wasn't that far along, but they believed that what John said, that Jesus was the Messiah, and they gathered together the small group of people who came to believe in Jesus, but without that later stream uh, that, that came from the life of Jesus and his, in the later instruction of the apostles and that came after his death and resurrection, they haven't heard any of that. So in this transitional period between the Old and, and New Covenant, we, we can imagine this third stream of Christian faith that identified with the earlier ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, but being cut off from the later ministry of Jesus, and, and so producing disciples who proclaimed faith in Jesus as Messiah, but lack knowledge about very significant aspects of Christian truth. And Paul recognizes this lack, and he connects it to a deficiency of spiritual knowledge and experience. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Practically, I don't think we need to know whether these men had saving faith in Jesus before meeting Paul or after meeting Paul. And this is the way of evangelism. It's not unusual to meet people who identify as Christians, but seem to have rather fuzzy thinking about the gospel or who cannot point to any specific moment when they, they yielded their life to Christ. In a sense, it's, it's not that important, not in that evangelistic moment. What is important is how they respond to the gospel message being shared with them. If they have truly believed in Jesus, then they will accept clarification of grace as the truth. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. If they're already his sheep, 
They're, they're going to respond to the voice of Jesus. And so it's not really relevant whether these men had truly believed before they met Paul or whether this is their moment of saving faith. What is relevant is that they have now affirmed their faith, and having been born again through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they can now begin to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers to his followers as they walk in him. They're hearing the Holy Spirit speak through Paul. They hear and they respond, and they receive immediate confirmation of what they, of what they believe to be true, that Paul's gospel is the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's telling them the truth. That immediate confirmation to them is manifested through tongues and prophesying. Now, the, the nature of that does raise questions for us. So we know that belief in Jesus Christ is followed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul recognizes through his conversation with these men that they lacked the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They were caught in the transition between Old Covenant and New, where it was possible to have believed in Jesus through John before Pentecost and to have not received the Holy Spirit. But then their faith is affirmed through the very visible signs of speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay, so we also believe that true faith is followed by the indwelling of the Spirit. Should we expect the new birth to be confirmed in a very visible way as it is here through speaking in tongues? We have to ask that question biblical narrative that we've been asking through Acts. What here is norm to the Christian experience? You know, what about these 12 men is, is normal at all times through, through the church age? And what here is special to specific circumstances? I already addressed this question in regard to speaking in tongues back in Lesson 16, which covered the first half of chapter 11. At that point, we had uh, already discussed the receiving of the Holy Spirit by the apostles at Pentecost, the Samaritans when Peter and John laid hands on them, and Cornelius' household after hearing the gospel from Peter. So we had those three accounts, so I addressed it then. I also referred to this account back in Lesson 16 so that we could cover all four accounts in Acts where we're told that people receive the Holy Spirit. And at that time, I addressed the context of, of each passage and the context of the whole book, and then the broader context of the apostles' teaching and the New Testament epistles. So if you want to refresh yourself on the comparison between those four passages, you can look back at Lesson 16. My conclusion back in Lesson 16 was that in these four accounts, the, the coming on the, of the Holy Spirit on people after they have placed their faith in Christ, like some with a time lapse, and the speaking in tongues when receiving the Holy Spirit, that neither one of those things is a norm for the church. That's not the normal way that, that these things happen. The normal experience and what we get taught in the later epistles is that people place their faith in Jesus Christ and are immediately born again through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that speaking in tongues may happen when someone comes to faith in Christ. It's a special gift and not attached to the new birth experience in the epistles, and it's not, not even encouraged as, as a sign of, of new birth. So what we are seeing in Acts with this delay of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues are special occurrences under special circumstances at the beginning of the New Covenant community. When we examine the epistles, we don't see a call to a second experience of the Spirit. 
We see the teaching that believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of new birth. We see a call to be filled with the Spirit. We've also seen Jesus teaching about our need to abide in him, that spiritual fruit comes through this uh, moment-by-moment abiding. That's John 15. And then we get Paul's exhortation to walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5, the baptism in the Spirit whenever we encounter it in the gospel and, and in the epistles. It is equivalent to the new birth that comes through faith in Jesus. So then the phrases abide in Christ, be filled with the Spirit, and walk in the Spirit are, are all speaking of the act of living out the Christian faith in dependence on the Spirit of Christ who has indwelt us at the moment of our, our true belief. Interestingly, it's in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that he gives the command to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And though he does take time in that letter to present the gospel message and to call the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, he never calls them to a second experience in the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't even mention tongues in the gift list of Ephesians 4.11. He does pray for the Ephesians, and it's interesting what he prays. He prays in chapter 3, 16 to 19, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Paul affirms this need for the Spirit of Christ to be working in the believer. So to to truly know Christ, you need his his Spirit to to be revealing to you the extent of, of his love for you. The norm that is communicated in our present story, what should be true of all believers in Jesus Christ through the church age, is an experience of the power of the Holy Spirit in us and and through us. It doesn't have to be evidenced by speaking in tongues, but there is something lacking in our Christian experience if we don't have an experience of being filled with the Spirit or the Spirit working in us, through us, empowering us, guiding us, developing fruit in our lives. I do have another question about the pattern. I can understand the special role that speaking in tongues played for the first three instances of receiving the Holy Spirit. Those events matched Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8 that his disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and that they would be witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, remotest parts of the earth. So Jews spoke in tongues in Jerusalem. That was our first story. Then Samaritans in Samaria. That was our second story. Then Gentiles in Cornelius' house. That was our third story. So as the gospel moves out culturally, the miracle of speaking in tongues affirms to the Jewish leadership of the New Covenant community that all peoples are received into the promise through faith in Jesus and that they're fully accepted. So the, the miracle of speaking in tongues shows that the, just like the Jews, the Samaritans and the Gentiles have, have received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Just so we, so we know that. They are not less spiritual than the Jews. And so God gives this outward confirmation so that the Jewish leadership will, will see we, we don't have to make them Jewish. So in order to attain a deeper spiritual status. They have been fully granted the promise through faith in Jesus Christ. So that explains the first three 
accounts, why we're why we have these three special moments of the Holy Spirit coming after belief and people speaking in tongues at that moment. But why this fourth instance of speaking in tongues after receiving the Holy Spirit? So there's the the immediate reason the experience would have served to affirm Paul's message to these these men themselves. So that's good for them, but we don't see that as a norm through I did not speak in tongues when I when I believed in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelt me. So that's this is not a norm for the church age. But is there another big picture reason that God would have these men speak in tongues and prophesy after Paul lays hands on them? I think there is. This experience here with these Ephesian believers has the effect of affirming the ministry of Paul through comparison to the ministry of Peter. Luke has been concerned with this throughout Acts to establish the credibility of Paul. In this particular movement here in in chapter 19, Luke recognizes and communicates several details that parallel God's work through Paul with God's work through Peter. Just as Peter laid hands on the Samaritans who then spoke in tongues, so too Paul lays hands on these men who are then empowered to speak in tongues. And note also the short sentence in verse 7, there were about 12 men in all. Yeah, that sounds like there were not 12 men. You, know, you, don't, you don't say there were about 12 men when there are not 12 men. If there were exactly 12 men, he would have said, and there were 12 men, not about 12 men. About 12 men would be 10 men or 11 or 13 men. So why not say about 10 men? You know, that, that's a, a normal round number. So if you've got 11 men, why say about 12 men instead of just saying, oh, there are about 10 you know, Luke could have said about 10, but he doesn't. He says about 12. And here we are in a story about a group of Jewish men who were baptized in the name of Jesus and then began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And Luke makes a point to tell us there are about 12 of them. So what is he trying to get us to think of? He's pointing back to Pentecost. This is a parallel he's recognized and he's showing us so that we'll see that Paul really is equally an apostle of the gospel uh, along with Peter. Uh, Later, I'll point out their other parallels in this text. Maybe you'll see them before we get there, but I'll point them out at the end. Okay, the summary. Uh, The story of the 12 emphasizes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through faith in the name of Jesus. So we've got Holy Spirit and name of Jesus. In that story, we're going to come back to that Uh, The second account in this introductory section provides an overview of Paul's first two years in Ephesus with an emphasis on the fruitfulness of that ministry. We've already read this. I'll read it again. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This, this happens, sounds very similar to Corinth. You know, Paul is continuing his strategy of entering the synagogue to proclaim the gospel. There is something that's different. Usually Luke describes Paul as proclaiming Jesus Christ. Here he says Paul seeks to persuade in regard to the kingdom of God. This is not a shift in message. This is a different phrase for summing up the same message. You know, to be Christ is to be king. Arguing that Jesus is the Christ is an argument about the kingdom of God. Paul's been, if Paul's been talking about Christ, he's been talking about kingdom of God all along. And just as the language of Christ is not a political message in direct opposition to the Roman emperor, we recognize that, that in Thessalonica, so also the language of kingdom is not in direct opposition to the Roman empire. You, know, you can live 
fully committed to this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, and then still be a good citizen of the Roman Empire, you know, until that empire pushes you to reject God. Jesus had told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this realm. Christians are not setting up a political Christian kingdom like there was a political theocracy Israel. During the church age, the kingdom of God is primarily a spiritual reality that works in and through us who have faith in Jesus. And being primarily spiritual doesn't mean that it doesn't have real effect and impact in this world. It better have. You know, that if, we, if we're truly living for Jesus, then we make a difference in society. Luke only refers to the kingdom of God seven times in the book of Acts, which is an interesting number. At the beginning of the book, the apostles had asked, is now the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. And then he gave them a different set of marching orders that reveals the agenda of the kingdom for the church. You know, we establish kingdom through witness. That's the agenda Jesus gave the 12. When the Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem and moving out to the ends of the earth. When people yield to faith in Jesus as king over their lives, the kingdom of God is expanded. And this kingdom of God is opposed to the demonic kingdom of darkness, So, which is why I think that Luke is using this language here, because it's setting us up for the story that is to come that the, the establishment of the kingdom of God is going to have a major impact in Ephesus. So as a Corinth, the opposition against Jesus became irreconcilable after three months of reasoning in the synagogue. So Paul leaves the synagogue and he goes again to a Gentile location from which he can continue to, to teach disciples and proclaim the gospel. So in Corinth, he went to the home of Titius Justus, located just beside the synagogue. Here, Paul moves to the school of Tyrannus. Uh, the word school means lecture hall. You know, maybe it says that in your translation. Tyrannus may be the teacher who taught at this lecture hall. Maybe he was a lecturer, or he may have been the owner of the lecture hall. We don't know. There's an insertion in some later manuscripts that says Paul taught from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. And we don't know if that's accurate. It certainly seems to come later, not original to the text. But it does have the ring of truth. In Mediterranean cultures of Paul's time, the workday started quite early, so we're talking like four in the morning, to avoid the heat of the day. So it's quite possible that the main lecturers, if, if Tyrannus was a lecturer, that he was done by 11. Paul likely got up early to work as a tent maker, and then he may have gone to the lecture hall to teach from 11 to 4, skipping the normal rest that takes place during the heat of the day, and instead choosing to teach through the heat because the lecture hall at that time was empty. It was available for his use. So it may not have been ideal, but God certainly produced fruit through it, right? So that Luke can end this introduction with a conclusion. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now Luke turns our attention to the problem, resolution, and follow-up he has chosen to record concerning Paul's stay in Ephesus for this movement. There's actually going to be another big problem in Ephesus, but we're keeping the pattern of, of Acts part 5. The text is not long, so I will read the whole, and then we will break it down. Acts 19, 11 to 20. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits 
the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Something truly special is going on here. The kingdom of God shines through God's servant, Paul, in an extraordinary way. God reigns over the laws of the physical universe. And so people are healed by Paul's touch, even by handkerchiefs carried from Paul to the sick. God also reigns in his kingdom power over the spiritual forces of darkness. So people are delivered from demonic possession. Luke has mostly kept us focused on the message of Paul rather than the miracles of Paul. Here he reminds us that the proclamation of Paul was accompanied by unmistakable power. And it was attractive to others who would use that power to their own end. The Jewish exorcists here remind me of Simon the magician in Samaria who offered money to Peter. And he saw Peter laying hands on people and they began to speak in tongues and and he wanted to be able to have that power by laying on his, of his, his hands. These exorcists made the similar mistake of understanding spiritual reality, that the power that they were seeing from a worldly point of view. They believed that spiritual power was something a person could tap into through the right formula. You know, the Holy Spirit can be manipulated through the name of Jesus. That's what they saw happening when Paul proclaims the name of Jesus. People are, are freed from the demonic. And so they're like, we want to get some of that. How do, we, how do we learn this magic spell? How do we learn this? How do we learn to manipulate the name of Jesus so that we also can, can do this? That's the problem that Luke, Luke records here for us. If these Jews succeed in using the name of Jesus as a source of spiritual power, then they will succeed in compromising the gospel message. The message of Paul will be, syncretized together with a bit of Judaism and a bit of pagan spiritism and a bit of magic. Jesus will not stand out as distinctly different from pagan practice of the gods and magic. He'll just be another source of power, just another god to add in. The account of the 12 men at the beginning of the chapter gave us a picture of what the Christian relationship with the Holy Spirit really ought to look like. First, we believe in Jesus then through our relationship with him, we are empowered and led by a spirit. For them to be baptized into the name of Jesus, that wasn't, that wasn't a simple baptism formula. Baptized into the name of Jesus meant they were receiving the revelation of who Jesus was. Jesus' own self-revelation communicated through Paul. These, this is Jesus, who Jesus says he is. Do you truly believe in his name. Do you believe that's who he is? And when they submit to who Jesus truly is, then they're empowered with the Holy Spirit. What these Jewish exorcists attempt is something very different. 
though though maybe not so different from the way that many Christians attempt to relate to the Holy Spirit. I, I think we we all, to some, maybe to a lesser degree, have the temptation of falling into this this idea if I if I just pray with the right words or the right amount of faith or or if I'm good enough through the day, if I if I get the right formula, then I can get God to do what I want God to do. See here, the the name of Jesus Christ doesn't represent to them the Lord to whom they should personally submit. It's not relational. The, The name of Jesus Christ is not bringing about faith. To them, the name of Jesus is a magical formula they can use in prayer to exert power over the spiritual world. Okay, we know that's wrong, and yet yet we have to be careful because sometimes we pray and we end our prayer in the name of Jesus. What are we doing when we do that? Am I tagging that on because that's the right way you pray to get what you want? Or or is, is that a statement of my, I am giving this prayer up to Jesus. I am trying to pray in line with who I know Jesus to be. I'm praying out of my relationship with Jesus in the name of Jesus. Now, what are we saying? These exorcists are breaking the third commandment. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. And that commandment is specifically directed against a spiritual or a magical use of the name of God to obtain your own ends. Prayer that attempts to use God as a way to gain power or control over life is magic. It's the attempt to manipulate God. True believers pray like Jesus. Take this cup from me if it is your will, O God. My trust is in you. you know, we pray to God as our Father in heaven who loves us and desires our good and who is completely sovereign and who is free to answer our prayers according to his own will and wisdom. Prayer for the believer is a relational conversation. And when we ask for things, we always ask as a request to the one who has right authority over our lives. It's, going, it's asking anything of your, of your dad or, or you know, asking someone who has authority over you. You have the right to ask and you hope they'll answer. But he is father. He is king. He is God. Our right relationship is to love, to serve, to obey. And he, he and welcomes our requests. But we also recognize he has the right to deny any request. And we're, we can't, we're not trying to manipulate him through the intensity of our emotion or through a magical pattern of, or repetition of words or through life obedience. Um, that's pagan thinking. We, we can't force God to act. We, we can pour out our emotion. We can let him know how important this is to us. But in the end, if he doesn't act, that's amen. He is God. He, he is the one with all wisdom and all power and all knowledge. He knows whether or not to answer this prayer that I've, I've submitted to him. And am I disappointed? Yes. But God, help me, to be, help me to have faith not to be disappointed. Help me to believe that you're not answering my prayer is, is out of your goodness and out of your wisdom. Help me to truly submit myself to who you are, to the name of Jesus, that you are king and you are good and you are sovereign and, I'm, and I want to trust you with my prayer. So we can ask anything out of love for him and, and he will answer out of love for us. And that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. We, we're praying out of this growing recognition of who Jesus really is and who our Father really is. And we pray to relate to him, to see him. 
We also pray to see ourselves and our circumstances through his eyes. So I'm always a little surprised when people say, why should we pray if God is just going to do what he wants to anyway? And it makes me wonder, is that why you pray? You, you pray to get God to do what you want God to do. Is that what you think prayer is? A way to get stuff from God? Is God a source of power and you just have to learn the right formula for manipulating him so you can get what you have asked for? And if he can't be manipulated, then why even talk to him? Why would I talk to somebody I can't manipulate? Well, you talk to him because you love him, because you, you trust him. You believe that he is good. You're, you're, it's, it's, he is your father. You're entering into relationship with him. And when he doesn't answer your prayers, that's an opportunity for you to see things the way that God sees things. That's not what these exorcists believe. They believe that God could be manipulated, that the name of Jesus is a formula for unleashing spiritual power. And they tried to use the name of Jesus without any relationship with Jesus. And that's what the spirit, that's what the evil spirit's going to tell them. I, I have no idea who you guys are. The resolution to this misuse of the name of Jesus comes through the response of the evil spirit. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The approach of these Jewish exorcists is shown to be false in a really dramatic way. You know, they did not submit in faith to Jesus, as the 12 Jewish men did at the beginning of our chapter. They sought to use the name of Jesus for their own ends. God did not protect them from the fire they were playing with. God did not allow them to continue on with the false belief that Jesus is just another God that you can include into your religious system to make your life better. By declining to protect these men, God sends the message, do not play with the name of Jesus. Do not take his name in vain. The follow-up to this story is revival in Ephesus. You know, the shocking, brutal effect of the misuse of Jesus' name opened people's eyes to the power of the kingdom of God, and it led to a widespread rejection of occult practice throughout the city. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and people turned to him. The, the revival extended to prominent practitioners of the magical arts who renounced magical texts worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And that's a huge amount when you consider that one drachma was equivalent to a day's wage. I don't particularly fancy the burning of books. In this case, however, the books in questions are not simply repositories of information. The books are how-to manuals. The reason you have these books is to use them, and you use them to get control over the spiritual world. The use of these manuals is an invitation to the spirits to be active in your life. You know, that, that's creating an open door for the demonic. And the destruction of these books showed a commitment. And you know, it was a sacrifice. It's a lot of money. It's a commitment to turn away from the occult, to not play with the fire of the demonic, but to instead come under the kingship of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have entered into spiritual union with Jesus. The magical use of the name Jesus is no protection to us. But relationship and dependence on the person of Jesus, on that name, that, that's our protection. When we pray for God's protection in the name of Jesus, we're not using magical formula. We are acknowledging our faith 
in the person of Jesus and who he declares himself to be. He is God and his spirit indwells us. We do not have to be afraid of the demonic when we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust in the power of his lordship. I said that at the end I would come back to the parallelism Luke recognizes here between the ministry of Peter and Paul. The two are both called by God. They preach the same message of salvation through Jesus Christ and empowerment for life in the Holy Spirit. The parallelism began in the introduction, taking us back to the beginning of Acts. We have 12 Jewish men affirming their belief in the name of Jesus who are filled with the Spirit and then speak in tongues and prophesy as a result. That reminds us of Pentecost. Paul also lays his hands on men, and just as Peter laid his hands on the Samaritans before they spoke in tongues. Then we have the report of extraordinary miracles, where even a handkerchief of Paul heals the sick. And that reminds me of Acts 5.12, where the apostles are performing many signs and wonders to the degree that people laid out their sick on the street in the hope that Peter's shadow might fall on them. You know, we, we just have these two reports of this kind of extraordinary, over-the-top miracles, and one is a Peter and one is a Paul. Those miracles back in Acts 5 were preceded by the story of hypocrisy that went very bad for Ananias and Sapphira, in a way similar of the Jewish exorcists here who are wrongly using the name of Jesus, and then it goes very bad for them. In both stories, so at the, here in chapter 19 and, and back at the end of chapter 5, the people of the city begin to fear Yahweh and place their faith in Jesus. The expansion of the church that began in Israel through God's chosen apostle Peter is continuing among the Gentiles through God's chosen apostle Paul. All right, this movement ends Acts part 5. In each of our four movements, from Philippi to Athens to Corinth to Ephesus, Luke has developed the theology of the gospel against a backdrop of Gentile politics, philosophy, and religion. This story in Ephesus reminds us that though the advance of the gospel certainly requires reason and persuasion from the word, like Paul's been doing in the synagogue and in the school of Tyrannus, the spread of the gospel is not purely a battle for the mind. The proclamation of the gospel is a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women that can only be won through faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul would later remind these Ephesians in his letter, Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Luke wraps up Acts part 5 with this final summary statement. Acts 19, 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see some overview charts that go along with our study of the book of Acts, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, and the Gospel of John.